welcome, uh, welcome back. Today I have Dr. Murray Stein with me again today. I spoke with him a few months ago and talked about some uh, religious ideas and he gave us his background. Um, and I, I asked him to come back to talk about a few more things uh, such as redemption and the afterlife. So some pretty uh, small topics. Um, before we get started, let me just, I'm going to reintroduce Dr. Murray Stein. So he is a graduate, a graduate of Yale University, um, the University of Chicago, and the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich. He is a founding member of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts and of the Chicago Society of Jungian Analysts. He has been the president of the International Association for Analytical Psychology and the president of the International School of Analytical Psychology Zurich. His most recent book is The Mystery of Transformation, um, which is a really good read. I recommend that book to anyone interested in uh, Dr. Stein's work or in Jungian thought. And uh, so we're going to get into it. And then um, I think if it would be okay with you, sir, could we start? I, I just wanted to ask the last time that we talked, you talked about your upbringing and, you know, the... the the upbringing of taking the Bible literally, and if it's not in the Bible, then perhaps it's not worth uh, looking into or thinking about or questioning, and all of your answers are there. Um, and with that, I don't know that this is accurate, but I would assume you grew up with the um, the ideas of heaven and hell and like eternal torment. Uh, um, so I was just curious about when you kind of, I think nowadays they would call it deconstructed, but when you kind of transitioned your faith into making it more personalized, um, what was it like letting go a lot of, of a lot of that, that ideas from your upbringing? And was there any like fear involved of what if you're wrong or any type of thing like that? It's been so long ago that it's hard for me to remember that transition. <laughs> but I think it was gradual. I don't think it was so abrupt. Um, you know, school has a tremendous effect on us. We're um, acculturated and brought into modernity in school. And so gradually over a period of time, we're introduced to ideas like evolution and uh, geology and the cosmos, how it's put together, and all of that that's different from what uh, the Bible describes. Um, and so, I mean, I remember there was a moment when I came home and asked my mother about evolution and said some kid had mentioned, you know, that we, we were descended from the monkeys. And uh, she said, uh, well, he may have been, but we weren't. <laughs> she kind of made a joke of it. Yeah. I didn't really fight it. Uh, my parents were quite liberal-minded, actually, <clears throat> as I look mm. back on it. And they didn't object to my reading most anything. I mean, they didn't. Um, I read Freud when I was 14 or 15. Oh. I got a book, uh, Freud's Interpretation of Dreams, and oh. bought it and brought it home and read it. And I, I didn't discuss it with them, but um, mm -hmm. I found it very interesting and uh, and then my teachers, you know, were liberal and uh, of this world. And so this introduction into modernity and 
a different way of thinking about history and all that came on mm. gradually. With regard to the biblical stories um, and uh, what we have come to call the myths of the Bible or the, you know, the fables, um, I think I, I rather gradually took on a, an interest in them as metaphors uh, or hmm. examples of uh, how to be in the world, how to be with others, um, and uh, the miracles in the Bible, um, you know, Jesus turning the water into wine at the Feast of Cana hmm. uh, was seen as a story of Jesus generosity and his love of the party and uh, um, <laughs> wanting to do the right thing uh, in a social setting. Uh, so it wasn't the, the literalness of the miracles weren't emphasized. Uh, my mother's more or less deathbed in, his la in her last years, she died in her 70s from uh, Parkinson's and some dementia, so on. Um, I asked her um, what her favorite uh, part of the Bible was. And she ah. said without hesitation, oh, uh, the epistles of Paul. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of what we grew up uh, with. Uh, my sister and I as children, it was more the values, the ethics, the uh, theological aspects of um, the Christian faith rather than an emphasis on, on the miracles. You know, Paul mm. never met Jesus. He hardly refers to the historic Jesus of Nazareth. He refers to Christ and to Christ as a, as a symbol um, that anyone can respond to. It, it's not a question of literalism. It's a question uh -huh. of whether you can relate to symbols or not. And Christ is a very powerful symbol or millions of people, uh, whether they believe in the literal miracles of Jesus or not. Of course, you come to a point where you have to commit yourself, uh, for instance, on the resurrection. And that was always the sticking point. Did Jesus really um, die and uh, uh, come back to life in a resurrected body, his body disappear from the tomb. Hmm. Uh, maybe I mentioned last time when I was in Israel, there, there is a place in the church of the, um, what is it called? The church of the uh, Holy Sepulchre, where uh, according to tradition, Jesus was buried. And there is a, a hole in the ground that you can observe and look at. And that's supposedly where Jesus' body was placed and um, where, you know, the resurrection took place. And I was there with a Jewish friend, analyst, friend of mine in Israel. And I said, oh, that's where the body was. And that's where it, it couldn't be found on Easter Sunday morning. Uh, it had disappeared. And he didn't say anything. He just smiled at me. You know, you really believe that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I do or not. Um, I believe something important happened there that was very transformative for the people who had been following Jesus. 
that the, the literal was transformed into something symbolic and mm. went up into heaven. Um, but, you know, there is in Paul, too, this literal belief that um, the dead will rise from their tombs in the second coming and all of that. So uh, I guess I just transitioned to seeing all that as a symbol and metaphor. And um, you take it in the now, in the present, as a, as a living symbol, as Jung called it. A living symbol is something that speaks to you, that touches you, that uh, you, in the presence of a symbol, you, you have a numinous experience. It, it gives you a, a, an emotional charge or effect. And I must say the stories in the Bible about um, Jesus and, and others uh, can still have that effect on me. So it's still a living symbol. So the transition, uh, I think, was gradual and um, cultural. Uh, and by the time I got to divinity school, um, I was um, 21 years old and went to Yale Divinity School from college. And nobody at the divinity school would have said that they believed anything uh, literal about the Bible. Oh, really? At Yale Divinity School, very liberal. It was social action oriented. The man who um, taught preaching, uh, uh, Bill Meal was his name, a great preacher. And I remember he preached a sermon one Easter Sunday morning and he called Easter the great escape. He said, uh, it's, a, it's a, a cheap release from suffering. And uh, people take it too quickly and too easily to escape from the, the suffering of, of Friday. We should stay with Friday longer and not jump so quickly to Easter. That was his sermon. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so that's, that's what I, I got in divinity school, you know, very liberal <laughs> theology. And, even though we read Karl Barth, but you know, Karl Barth, who was a very influential theologian in the 20th century, as creator of what was called neo-orthodoxy. Um, I don't think in his heart of hearts, he had a literal belief in the, uh, in the Bible either. Uh, he was a kind of tricky fellow. He wanted to have it both ways, you know, to say it as though it were literally true but knowing that it was um, in, a, in a type of language or language game, as, um, as some philosophers have called it, a language game that if you get into that game, everything makes sense within that context. It's a whole world put together. That's how myths operate. Once you get into them, all the pieces uh, make perfect sense and, and the thinkers who think about those pieces uh, but if you step out of that game and look at it from the outside you know if you look at any religion from the outside and study it as a scholar hmm. it looks you know it looks like myth it looks like people have just fabricated this they've made this up they want to believe in it and so um, yeah, it, it, it no longer speaks to you as a symbol so what we learned at Divinity School was if you um, uh, want to um, participate in Christianity 
as a minister. And some of, maybe half the students there were preparing for the ministry, the other half would do other things. Uh, but if you want to participate in Christianity as a minister, um, you have to get inside the game uh, and play by the rules of the game. Um, and that's difficult in a way in, this, in the modern world because on Sunday you're in that game, but on Monday you're in a secular world, mm -hmm. uh, which is a very different type of game. It's very materialistic, very rational, um, scientific, scientific materialism. So you, um, you operate one way uh, in, in the world and another way in um, the religious um, context. Hmm. And it's a kind of schizophrenia, actually. It's very uh. hard to bring those two together. Some theologians have tried, like Paul Tillich, I think. Uh. Paul Tillich was a, a theologian, modern theologian, who felt very strongly uh, that um, the gospel uh, could address modern questions with answers, but they were all at the level of symbol and meaning. That modern man was deprived of meaningful symbols and uh, Christianity has symbols to offer. Hmm. And um, so I heard him preach also at Battelle Chapel at Yale. And oh. uh, he preached a very powerful sermon um, in which he said, uh, you know, what the gospel teaches us is that you are accepted. Accept that you are accepted. Hmm. You see? Accept that you are accepted. And this, uh, so his notion about the, um, uh, the meaning of the gospel was psychological. It's about self-acceptance, about acceptance that uh, you are a valuable person. It addresses your there's feelings of guilt and remorse, and unworthiness, and low self-esteem, and all of that. It raises you up and this feeling of grace. Hmm. That's a very psychological approach. That was Bill Tillich. So I sort of gravitated in that direction. And then I discovered oh. you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That makes sense. You, you spoke of the... Um, of the Christ symbol, um, can you kind of can you kind of explain the difference between like Jesus and Christ? Well, the word Christ means Messiah. Uh, hmm. So when Jesus asked uh, his disciples, "Who do men say that I am?" and one said, "Oh, they say you're Elijah," another one said, "Oh, you're a prophet," but who do you say that I am? <clears throat> And then came that great moment where they said, you are the Christ. That's how we see you. You are the Messiah. Now, what is the Messiah? Um, the Messiah is uh, the promised uh, redeemer of the world. It, it, you know, the, the notion that a Messiah would come and uh, bring justice into the world and bring peace into the world, um, that it would be... Um, a very powerful force for goodness in the world um, uh, would uh, put evil in its place, put it down. All of that was prophesied in the Old Testament and 
and other eschatological literature that was very prevalent at, uh, um, just before the time of Jesus. So what they recognized in Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy, that this man who has come, this is the Messiah. Now, uh, that isn't how the Messiah was expected to come. Uh, the Messiah was expected to come as an all-powerful king and ruler. But Jesus was an ordinary man, the son of a carpenter. You know, he was he was not of the upper classes. He was born at Bethlehem, which was nowhere. And um, so to recognize this man as the Messiah was pretty extraordinary. But there was something extraordinary about this man, or he wouldn't have captured that, we say, projection, you know, that, that um, uh, vision. Uh, in the people around him, when they looked at him, heard him, that there was something so special about him that he could be called the Messiah, the Christ. That, that there was some something there, a very special quality in this man. And, um, you know, when the scholars have studied uh, the New Testament and they, uh, this was the new quest for the historical Jesus. Uh, and it was very active in the 80s, 90s, maybe even a little earlier. It started with Albert Schweitzer, the quest for the historical Jesus in the beginning of the century, and then took off in a second wave. And they went through the texts and line by line, did Jesus say this, yes or no? Did the, did the historical Jesus say this line, this, these words, yes or no? And they sifted them out by some criteria. I don't know what their criteria were, but does it make sense that he would have said this, that he could have possibly said this? So they sorted it out and they finally boiled it down to, you know, a few sayings that maybe he said. Hmm. Um, and you can't even be sure of that. So what we have in the Bible is a construction uh, uh, in retrospect. So the Gospels were written maybe 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus died. Hmm. Paul's epistles were written before that. Paul's epistles are the earliest part of the New Testament, and then the Gospels came later. And Luke, who's, uh, Luke wrote the book of uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts together, uh, was, uh, was not even a Jew. He was a Greek. He never met Jesus. He traveled with Paul. And when they went to Jerusalem together, uh, he collected a lot of stories that were being passed around uh, about Jesus, and there were some some early documents called the Quella, the Q document that was being circulated. Um, that's the background of the early gospels like Mark. And he stitched that all together and he created this beautiful masterpiece, uh, the Gospel of Luke. It's, it's a great work of art. And the book of Acts, which is the story of Paul and the missionary activities in the early church. And it's a very interesting story. But uh, neither Paul nor Luke ever met Jesus of Nazareth, but mm. they testified that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ. So why do they do that? Uh, and this was something that Jung wondered about. What was it? Why did this man, uh, born of a, a nobody, uh, a young girl, and Israel uh, take on such a huge symbolic value in uh, the first centuries of the 
common era. And um, he said it was because there had been predictions of the Messiah. So the, the people were prepared to recognize something like the Messiah. Uh -huh. And when they found this figure and the testimonies about him from the apostles, especially Paul, who spoke, who had the vision of Christ, uh, came to him in a flash. And he was so persuasive that it caught fire. And so they all in the next generation started seeing Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ. And the, the man more or less disappeared. Uh, all mm. the stories about the man are also very interesting, but they're very fragmented. We don't know anything about his childhood, really his early years, very, very little. And then from the age of 30 to 33, you know, these uh, extraordinary moments where he's teaching and performing miracles and so on. And then his death and resurrection, that's about it. Hmm. Um, but a lot of, as we say, archetypal projection was pinned on to that historical figure. And it held for 2,000 years. It's still going. Uh, and you're wondering why. And he relates that to astrology in the age of Pisces. And that um, it was a part of a shift from the uh, age of Aries, which was a, a, the god Aries to the age of Pisces, the two fish um, um, swimming in opposite directions. Um, and so Jung wrote a whole book about this, uh, Ion, um, uh, his interpretation of the of the age of Christianity, 2,000 years from the birth of Christ to the present time. And um, uh, so um, uh, what is Christ? Well, Christ was the God figure. Uh, Christ was the central archetypal image of the culture, the God image of the culture. And um, the Father God in the background, the Creator God, was a part of the picture and the Holy Spirit was a part of the picture. So you have three figures in the Trinity, but the central figure, the one we know the most about, we're the closest to and the stories and the image is the human figure. God became man and then returned to uh, heaven uh, as the Christ figure after the resurrection. Hmm. And that God becoming man is somewhat unique in mythological history. It does happen occasionally, but um, not to this degree. You know, the pharaohs were divine. They, um, huh. they were incarnations of the sun god Ray. And then when they died, they returned to the solar bark and so on. But they, they were nothing like Jesus. They were not redeemers. They were rulers. They were kings. Um, and they, they were um, uh, confined to a particular class. They had to be born from a pharaoh to become mm. a pharaoh. Well, Jesus is born from a virgin, and a carpenter father, a Holy Spirit, a strange story, virgin birth. But uh, that made him very special. That story sets Jesus apart from ordinary human beings. But he's still a human being. He's born of a human. And um, so uh, it's similar to the pharaohs, but 
uh, importantly different in that he's a, a teacher and a savior figure and pharaohs weren't anything like that. They were rulers. Yeah, thank you. It, um, it, that nicely segues into one of my other questions, which was um, that has to do with redemption. So um, a, a lot of, especially in the West, we hold to like the penal substitution theory of atonement to where um, Christ came because man, mankind was fallen and he came to uh, redeem us and that we cannot make it to heaven or to God of our own accord because we're so, because we're separate. Um, and so we can make it through Christ. Um, and he's, yeah, he's the purpose of him dying and resurrecting was for mankind's redemption. Um, what do you, I guess, make of that idea of redemption? Um, yeah, that's, um, you know, that's a deeply uh, Christian, especially Protestant. And, you know, when God created man uh, in his own image, hmm. he created man and woman. Um, um, they were pure creatures. They, they were without sin. They were without guilt. They were without history. They lived in paradise. And then there was the fall uh, when they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, realized that they were naked, they were put out of the garden. And ever since, uh, the uh, consequence has been that we are born into sin, we live in sin, and we will die in sin unless we are, um, quote, quotes, redeemed. Uh, that means bought back, made pure again. Okay, and um, and so um, Calvin, for instance, was very big on this topic, and, and the Protestant uh, reformers. This was absolutely central to their teaching that we are hopeless creatures and without any worth or value unless we um, are redeemed by Christ and. It's a question uh, that I asked. Uh, I remember asking this to some professors. Um, why is it that some people can believe and others can't? Because if you can't, then you're you're condemned for ever. Why why does God make it possible for some people to be redeemed and other people apparently not? <laughs> that's not fair. <laughs> Calvin would say that's that's up to God. That's God's. In God's wisdom, he has chosen some people to be redeemed, and he's leaving the others um, to fare for themselves. Hmm. So it was in the mystery of God's wisdom that uh, if you were redeemed, that is, if you had the experience of redemption. And uh, what I grew up with was this experience was very important, that you had to be born again. And that's an emotional, psychological experience of, uh, of being convicted of sin and then feeling the presence of the, 
of grace and you're born again and then you're baptized and now you're uh, all set up for um, a good life. <laughs> um, so in a way you have to be convinced that you're sinful to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of preaching was about that, you know, to convict people of their sins. So you get hellfire and brimstone. And, um, what uh, what a, a sorry lot we are and you are. And, and, and once people are convicted of their sin and know it's hopeless, they're helpless. They can't. They hit bottom, as they say in AA. You've got to hit bottom uh -huh. before you can start the new the new life process. Um, uh, you have to be con convicted of sin. Now, in the modern world, people um, don't necessarily believe that. You know, if you go out and take a survey among people here in Switzerland, um, are you sinful? Are you? Um, how bad are you on a scale of one to ten? Oh, I'm about a five or a six. You know, uh, I'm not perfect, but I'm okay. And um, I married a woman who, who. I was astonished when she said, well, I'm a pagan. I believe that everybody's good. We're all born good. There's nothing wrong with babies. Babies are pure. They're innocent. What? I said, <laughs> no. We're all fallen creatures. Um, so uh, I, I grew up with that idea. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not widely shared anymore. So it, it's getting to be a harder and harder sell to convince people that they need redemption. Hmm. Uh, especially in, uh, among educated people, and let's say among modern, sophisticated people. Maybe in your part of the country, out in the countryside, it's it's an easier sell. I don't know. <laughs> but in psych in, in psychoanalysis, um, it's interesting. We discover that people have this uh, dark side. People are not whole and perfect and innocent. They have what we call the shadow. And you discover that very quickly in analysis. You know, if you go into analysis, you start introspecting, telling your story, looking at your dreams, you find yourself in a situation of um, maybe some types of guilt that you hadn't really looked at carefully enough. You swept under the rug. You know, you're repressed. You're certain things you say and think and do and, and that comes out. What do you do with it then? Hmm. Well, the analyst can't redeem you. The analyst doesn't have that power of grace that a priest has. You know, in the Catholic Church, you, you confess your sins and then the priest can forgive your sins and you, you say a rosary and you go on. Yeah. But the analyst can't do that. So what do we do? Um, we just sit with it. And we say it's a part of your wholeness. Your shadow is a part of who you are. And um, we don't want to repress it. We want to look at it and we want to keep it conscious. You have a better chance of not doing evil if you know your propensity to do evil. You can catch it and maybe make a decision not to enact it. You, you know, you can do better if you know about your shadow. So we value the shadow as a part of consciousness. We want to make it conscious. We don't want to make people feel guilty necessarily, but we want to make them know themselves. 
We want to help them know themselves. And knowing about the shadow is a part of that. So how do they get over that feeling of guilt and remorse? Um, I think, uh, uh, you know, what Jung proposed was um, that uh, there is a possibility through um, inner work to um, arrive at a position where you can objectively observe yourself, your good and your evil, your bad, and um, accept it uh, as a part of the whole. Um, but um, coming, come to this point that Tillich talked about, accept that you are accepted by something else, that the ego can't do this. And there Jung is like the Protestant uh, uh, theologians. Uh, Luther says, we can't save ourselves. You know, we have to, we need grace from somewhere else. And Jung would say the same thing. We need that uh, transcendent source of, um, uh, of uh, acceptance or grace that comes from beyond the ego. Um, Self-acceptance isn't something that you can effectively just do with your ego. That has to come from a deeper level of yourself. It has to come from the self, as, we, as he said. And um, so it's a, a kind of version of redemption that, that Jung proposed that uh, arrives uh, from the transcendence within uh, the psyche. Now, whether that links to a transcendence outside the psyche, he left as an open question. Uh, I think he thought it did, but he couldn't. Um, say that as a scientist, uh, mm -hmm. as a psychologist. But I think there is a kind of redemption effect, let's say, in the process of analysis. Um, but it doesn't necessarily make you feel perfect again or clean again, totally. <laughs> but it does help to um, balance out um, knowledge of the shadow with knowledge of other parts and the feeling that it all belongs to the whole and it's it's that the whole is good mm -hmm. that's the way i look on this yeah. question of redemption in psychology anyway. would um would jung say that so how you mm -hmm. said you have to feel the self-acceptance from the self, like the ego can't do that for you. Um, for Christians who take that approach and they feel the guilt and they, they feel the guilt and they, they're exposed to their shadow, let's say. Um, and then they, through Christ, the symbol, um, and if, if Christ and Jungian thought represents the self, is it, is it basically, the Christian idea of accepting Christ and then feeling redeemed and accepted, is that symbol serve the purpose of bridging the gap? So the self, you feel the acceptance from the self instead of from the ego. Does that make sense? 
Well, that's that's a very difficult uh, topic. Um, ah. Jung wrestled with that mightily. Um, um, is Christ a symbol of the self? He said yes, but not a complete symbol of the self. Mm. <laughs> it's a it's a partial symbol of the self. It's uh, it symbolizes one side of the self, or one aspect of the self: the goodness, the love, um, the um, all the positive. Mm -hmm. um, things that Christ represents, but he said there's an there's something missing because the self also has uh, another side, and that is represented by the Antichrist. Mm. So you know Christ, there's Christ and the Antichrist in Christian. Uh, uh, call it myth. You know they're two mm. they're brothers. Um, and um, Christ has a hard time accepting uh, the Antichrist, or what do you do with the Antichrist? Um, and what Jung tried to do was create a symbol or find a symbol that would include uh, both of them hmm. in a larger whole that he called the Quaternity. And, um, so that union of the opposites to create a full symbol of the self, he said, would be the task for the next age, the age mm -hmm. of Aquarius. In the age of Pisces, you have this strong and very sharp contradiction between Christ and Antichrist. It's, it's really uh, irreconcilable opposites. Mm -hmm. But in the age of Aquarius, which is a different uh, era of um, of wholeness and, and uh, reconciliation of the opposites. There, there would be the possibility of uh, combining them into in a larger picture that would contain both of them. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so you could say, uh, and, and and Paul Tillich uh, talked about this too. God beyond God. You know, we have a concept of God. When we say God and Christ and all that, these are images and ideas that we have, and concepts. What is beyond our concepts? Is there something even uh, greater than our biggest concept? We can't think God all the way. It's, it's too big. So we get pieces. And, um, and so then that, that's a kind of leap of faith to the other side of the wall where the opposites are united in God. Uh, and everything is reconciled ultimately in the, in the um, God beyond God. But that's such a mystery, we can't think anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I know Jung also talked about God or the God image. Um, you know, he talked about the quaternity in it. Um, he talked about God not only being all good, but God was also evil or the God image also represented evil. Um, and he gave an example of, you know, like the prayer, lead me not into, lead us not into temptation. And he talked about God's evil side as well. Is that, um, I wanted to know more about that thought. And is it more of like Christians don't even believe that God has the capacity for evil 
and he does, it's just restrained, or would he say that God also enacted evil? Well, that gets to the point of what is evil. Uh -huh. um, and um, I wrote a introduction to a book that I edited, uh, made a collection of things that Jung said about evil. And it's called Jung on Evil, and I wrote an introduction. Okay. And I looked pretty carefully at it, and um, it's always hard to pin Jung down, but um, basically he says that evil is a category of judgment. Good and evil are judgments that we make based on various assumptions or preferences. Hmm. And so what is evil to you may not be evil to me. Um, mm -hmm. For instance, in this war in the Ukraine, between Russia and Ukraine, if you go into Russia and listen to their point of view, they are fighting for good. Hmm. They believe that they're fighting for good values, for Christian values, that they're upholding the highest values of Christianity mm -hmm. by um, opposing the West. The West they see as evil and corrupt. And what they look at is the materialism, um, the um, vice, the, all the rampant sexuality, LGBT, all the rest of that they put under the category of evil. That's a judgment that they make. But when we look at Russia and what they're doing in Ukraine, we say they're evil because mm -hmm. they are killing innocent people, they're torturing them, they're, they're bombing hospitals and churches and, and schools. It's horrible what they're doing. Uh, that's evil. That's our judgment of them. So you step back and you say, what's evil? Well, it's a judgment. Um, and from another perspective, you could say from a God perspective, uh, maybe nothing is evil and nothing is good. Maybe there is no difference between good and evil. You know, Nietzsche wrote, but beyond good and evil, is, is there a position or a standpoint that um, can look upon anything, everything that happens as just so? This is it. This is nature. This is what happens. Given the makeup of uh, the players of the game and, and <laughs> nature. You know, what's happening in nature now uh, you know, with global warming? Um, human beings are being considered evil because they're depleting nature of its resources. They're destroying the natural environment. Other species are going extinct because of human beings. Human beings can be seen as, as uh, uh, a plague on the planet. Um, so some people judge human beings as evil, hmm. but if you look at human beings in another way and all the wonderful things that they've created and the culture and the, and the art and um, um, technology and all of that, it's amazing what human beings have done. Uh, so it's hard to judge, yeah. um, but um, it may just be that's the way things are set up and that's the way it's evolving and we don't know the outcome of all this. Maybe there's something going on in a bigger picture than we realize that we'll see this as part of part of history, just part of what happens in the course of 
the interactions between humans and other species and nature. Um, so um, the question of how do you judge good and evil, it, it depends very much on where you stand, what your values are. Um, in politics, it's rampant, you know, our side is good, your side is evil. <laughs> Yeah. Anything your side does is evil. No matter what you do, it's evil. It's bad. No matter what our side does, it's good. Well, you know that's crazy. That's a, <laughs> that's a, a distortion based on um, a kind of a mob mentality. Hmm. So if you can step outside of that, which some people try to do and say, well, this is pretty good about what this party does, and that's pretty good, or pretty bad what that one does, and you can kind of differentiate a bit your um, rise above hmm. that level of judgment uh, but there are times when you have to make a judgment you know are, are you on this side or that side and Switzerland tries to be neutral um, but it's impossible uh, in certain situations like with Ukraine they cannot be neutral about hmm. that they have to take sides and they have taken sides Maybe not as extremely as England or America, but um, when you when you see what's happening there, you just have to choose. Uh, mm. Yeah, mm. that's the existential quandary. What do you choose? Choose this day. Choose good. Don't choose bad. Says Moses to his people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We've got about five more minutes. So. Okay. Uh, Daniel, so if you want to throw one more on the table. Okay. Last question. Uh, after our last conversation, we spoke offline for a moment and then I lost internet connection, but I wanted to ask... Um, when it comes to the afterlife, um, I know none of us has ever been there, but when it comes to how you maybe, you know, Carl Jung, I, I know that he said that it was healthy like for your psyche. It was psychological healthy to believe in the afterlife. And um, I wonder what you think of the afterlife from maybe both a psychological perspective and just, uh, yeah, all around. Um, you know, Jung was asked um, late in life, do you believe in God? By an interviewer from the BBC. And he said, uh, stumbled for a little while, and then he said, well, I've always had a difficult time believing. I don't believe, I know. Uh, yeah. I, I have to know based on experience. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in line with that. Uh, hmm. I can't say I believe in the afterlife. I have ideas, I have thoughts. One idea is that we're made of three parts, uh, body, soul, and spirit. A body will go back to its chemical uh, base, and the spirit and soul will remain and go into another space. That's a thought. Uh -huh. I can't say I necessarily believe in it, but I think about it. Um, hmm. And uh, um, 
But I've, you know, the strange thing is I've had experiences, we call them synchronicities, uh, around death, when people have died, that um, were so amazing that I, uh, I can't realize, those are facts that the young would say, what are the facts? Okay. The fact is this happened and then this happened. And um, it, it was as though, and it was very convincing, the spirit of the dead person reappeared as, in one case it was a butterfly, in another case it was birds. And I've talked to people about this and they say, have you had any experiences like this? And I hear so many stories like that. Hmm. And also dreams. Um, I worked with a woman uh, in analysis for a couple of years who, whose daughter died in a tragic automobile accident. She was an only child, 16 years old. And, um, and when we um, sat together in analysis and she brought me her dreams, there were a lot of dreams about her daughter. <clears throat> and of course she was in deep grief and mourning and it was a total trauma for her and her family. Um, and the dreams um, tended to fall into two categories. One was their remembrance dreams. This is how she was when she was three years old and we were doing such and such and we were going here and there. And then there were other dreams that were like visitations. Mm -hmm. In one, I remember the girl in the dream came through a wall and spoke to her mother and told her what she was doing on the other side of the wall. Oh, she cool. was going to school and she was continuing to advance in her education. And these dreams, the mother took, although she was a very, very rational businesswoman, Jewish, I mean, she had, <laughs> she had no uh, belief in the afterlife whatsoever when we started out, but she took those as um, consoling visitations. So partly it was healing for her, it had a practical effect and I went along with her completely uh, because it really helped her get uh, through this terrible trauma and get on, move on in her life. Though so she could never put that behind her. But uh, it also convinced me in um, the presence of um, our, um, our dear friends, in, at least in our psyches but probably more in uh, even beyond our psyches. So between the synchronicities and, uh, and the dreams, and I've had some dreams like that about deceased friends and so on, um, that are just um, so uh, convincing that they're, that they're okay, that they're doing well. I like to think that. Uh, yeah. And I, uh, because of these facts, I, I tend to lean in the direction, let's say, of um, deeply um, feeling or believing there is an afterlife. What it is, how it is, I don't know. Um, when, when Dante made his journey, he saw the deceased in three levels, you know, the, the inferno where they were suffering forever and would never get out of there and the purgatory which had hope and they were advancing to the paradiso and then the paradiso uh, the heavenly realms and uh, 
it's very convincing if you read that. Uh. I was deeply moved by studying the Divine Comedy and its um, it, its its movement toward a goal. Um, I think we must have a kind of ultimate transcendent goal. I just can't get away from that idea that we're destined for something beyond just living our years out here on this planet. <laughs> yeah. You, uh, when I read your book, The Mystery on Transformation, The Mystery of Transformation, your chapter on Dante's Divine Comedy, that was the most, I, I enjoyed that chapter the most. Yeah. And so, yeah, with that, thank you very much. Um, where can people find you? Are you working on any new books? Um, anything like that? Well, I'm, I'm putting together um, a collected writings, and I've, I'm working on volume seven now. Volume um, five and six, six has been published, five will be published in a couple of months. I'm okay. working on seven, I think there will be 10, probably or so finally. And, uh, and I'm also working on some uh, writing some plays with a friend of mine, a Jewish friend of mine in Israel. Oh, and cool. We've one and performed it. We're now in the final phases of preparing number two, and we're thinking about number three. So that's been oh, wow. a lot of fun. I have a website that's now being, it's under construction, reconstruction, but uh, you can find all this books and so on information. Uh, on my website, murraystein.com. Okay, thank you. I'll link that in the in the description. Um, the plays, are they going to be like broadcasted anywhere or written or like published? Yes, the, the, the first one has been published. It's called The Analyst and the Rabbi. Oh, cool. Uh, it's published by Chiron Publications and uh, we did make a, a film version of it. I think it's on YouTube. Uh, okay. And um, we'll publish the others in time as well. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Yeah. All right, good, sir. Thank you so much. Okay, Daniel. Nice talking to you.